Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. Charlotte Readers Podcast Beyond 300 is about you, the listener. We want your feedback, opinions, recommendations, and questions. Email us or leave us a voice message and you might hear us mention you or play your message on the podcast. Just go to the homepage or contact page at charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the links to email us or leave a voice message. It's easy to do. Let's have some fun together. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. You can subscribe to Charlotte Readers Podcast wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. We're on all major podcast platforms. And the best part is, it's free. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, uh, this is episode 314 of Charlotte Readers Podcast Beyond 300, and I'm here today with uh, co-host Sarah Archer, uh, and, uh, you know, co-host Hannah LaRue is still on maternity leave, but Hannah, if you're listening, uh, Look forward to having you back. But in the meantime, we've got uh, Misha Lazara. Did I pronounce that right, Misha? Lazara, but okay. Well, let's, I'm gonna that try happens. Yeah, that, <laughs> that happens. I'll probably make the mistake. Well, anyway, Misha, I'm just gonna go with Misha. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and we're gonna uh, talk uh, about your book today, and we're gonna talk about some writing topics with you. But uh, uh, just to tell you, listeners, what we got lined up, uh, we got a great episode. Yeah, we're going to start off with an author feature. We've got an interview with Afbar Hussein in his novel, Truth is a Flightless Bird, which is set in Nairobi. One reviewer calls it a fast-paced story set in an African city that never sleeps. Another reviewer said it's a savage love letter to Nairobi and a chronicle of the human heart. Yeah, we're going to have a uh, we're going to have our reading recommendations as usual and some uh, community and listener engagement. And Charlotte, let's two-minute tip. This time it's going to be about uh, how much detail to put in a scene. We've also got a great discussion about a community blog post by Brian Mitchell called Blitz Writing. So we'll get some good uh, tips on how to get a first draft done with that. Yeah, we're going to wrap up today uh, with a good long discussion with Amisha about her novel, uh, Man-Made Constellations. Uh, It's a modern day love story wrapped up in what I call a road trip uh, from a small town in the Midwest, uh, for which she has received praise from the likes of New York Times bestselling novelist Jill McCorkle about her pitch-perfect dialogue. And Misha also teaches uh, fiction writing at UNC Charlotte. Just found out, too, that she's a, a podcaster in a, in a podcast called Bandwives, so we might just ask her about that as well. Uh, we're going to dive into a number of writing topics uh, with her today on the podcast as well. So uh, readers and writers, uh, stick around. But before we before we jump into that, we're going to sort of catch up with uh, what's going on with the co-hosts. And uh, we'll start, uh, Sarah, with you. Yeah, so um, I'm still working on this feature that I've been writing, working on it with the studio. Uh, I've got a meeting coming up next week with the producers to talk about next steps for that and working on some short fiction um, on the side in the meantime. Um, yesterday, I also just wrote an article for a group called the Phoenix Screenwriters Association, which is going to be featuring their newsletter, talking about lessons from fiction that screenwriters can apply to their writing. I feel like I've done a lot of kind of coaching in the other way, helping fiction writers learn lessons from screenwriting. So it was kind of interesting to look at it from the opposite perspective. Um, and maybe that's something you could even talk about on the podcast at some point. 
And let's see, I think this releases on November 8th. So mm -hmm. when that happens, I'll actually be in New York. Um, I'm going to be up there for about a week doing tourist stuff and also just seeing some friends, seeing a bunch of writers I know in the area. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. All right. I miss you with that cue of it releasing on November 8th. What's going on in your life? <laughs> um, I don't know. The, the teaching, you, you know, teaching? every week grading about 150 pages a week. I turned in novel two at the end of September. And so really any day now, I'm kind of expecting the developmental edits or, you know, getting those reviews back from Blackstone Publishing. So I feel like my November and December will be editing. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Well, uh, we're recording this at the end of October, and I just got back uh, this week from uh, the Yonder Bar in Hillsborough, a historic place. Uh, it was like kind of being a stand-up uh, <laughs> stage set up there and, and a skeleton beside me as I was talking about <laughs> books. But uh, Jill McCorkle, she showed up, uh, who, who blurbed mm -hmm. your book, so it was good mm -hmm. to catch up with her. Uh, and the other thing that uh, I'll be doing in, uh, in uh, November, I'm just going to let uh, Dave Collins tell you about it right now. This is Dave Collins, president of the Charlotte Writers Club, reaching out to you with an invitation to join us for a meeting. Maybe two, maybe long term. We'd like that. The club meets on the third Tuesday of each month at the Tivola Senior Center. Some months we gather to listen to a craft talk from an accomplished writer. Other months our speaker is a publicist or an agent, someone who knows the book of business and can help our writers market their work. Anything likely to make life easier for our members is likely to come up sooner or later. Our meetings begin at 6.30 p.m., though most of us try to arrive a few minutes earlier to talk stories. Whatever you're writing, poetry, short stories, personal essays, a novel, a memoir, screenplays, or plays for the stage, we have people in the Charlotte Writers Club doing the same thing. Our speaker on November 15th is Landis Wade, you know him as the long-term host, more than 300 episodes now, of the Charlotte Readers podcast. I think of Landis as a member of the CWC, the man who arranged our speakers for several years. And of course, as a novelist whose most recent offering, Deadly Declarations, tells the story of three quirky retirees who go to work solving mysteries and putting the bad guys in their place. But on the 15th, Landis isn't going to talk about writing. He's going instead to draw on his experience marketing four books on the difference between building a platform and book selling. It's all there in the title of his talk, all the book marketing I did not know and other tips for launching and marketing your novel. Our meetings are open to all and we hope you'll join us. For more information about CWC's programming, visit our website, charlottewritersclub.org. Yeah, there you go. All the stuff I did not know. I'm going to talk about <laughs> when it comes up. Uh, that'll, that'll be fun. Uh, and we're going to be uh, diving in here in a second in Act One. We're doing we're shifting things around a little bit, listeners. Uh, we're going to put our reading recommendations uh, closer to the middle of the show because uh, we're going to jump right in with the uh, with an author feature. Um, but before we do that, we have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code Charlotte Reader and claim your free audiobook. All right, we're in Act One, and uh, we're just going to roll along here, starting off with uh, an author feature with Akbar Hussein. The uh, name of the book is Truth is a Flightless Bird. Uh, Sarah, you want to tell us about uh, Akbar? 
Yeah, so Akbar is a lawyer. He's also the co-founder of a successful fintech startup. Um, he's lived in Nairobi for seven years, which I believe is where this book takes place. Right now he resides in New York. He's been published in Typecast Literary Journal and the Johannesburg Review of Books. Um, this is his first novel, and it's actually been optioned for an eight-part TV miniseries mini with UK-based Tudor House Productions. Um, so I think that's pretty exciting. Yeah, don't hold the fact he's a lawyer against him sometimes. <laughs> Lawyers can actually. We're, this is a lawyer friendly podcast. Lawyer <laughs> friendly. Well, we do have a quota, Sarah, right? We only let so many on, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, Akbar's book is uh, really interesting. Um, and uh, it, it's he sets it against the background of uh, President Obama's arrival to Nairobi. Um, and it's uh, kind of a gritty uh, novel. Um, and uh, it's, I'm just going to, we're going to start out first with the, the reading. Uh, that uh, our authors do when we feature them. And then I've got a few questions that I asked him. I'll, we'll, we'll share some of his answers to that. But let's, let's, hear, uh, let's hear a little bit from Truth is a Flightless Bird and his setup for that uh, scene he's going to read. Truth is a Flightless Bird takes place in the shadow of President Obama's arrival to that country when he was the sitting president. I was living in Kenya at the time, and the feeling was really electric. I'd never really taken part in, well, been part of, rather, um, anything that was so palpably historical. Um, and it was a very infectious feeling. This is chapter one of the novel, which is important because it was actually chapter two, which is a very debut novelist uh, thing to say, because I basically had to throw away chapter one after being told it was a lot of throat clearing. And that advice hurt at the time but I think it's the right thing to have done because uh, this chapter is very urgent, very primal. Uh, it creates a world uh, immediately and hopefully pulls you into it. Chapter one, nice traveled light. No carry on other than her wig of chestnut ringlets and her battered purse and the quarter kilo of bespoke narcotics. This short flight to Nairobi had left her dry mouthed Biting her lower lip, she thought about the dozen drug packets, each as big as a thumbnail and painstakingly coated in red candle wax in her belly. She could still taste the acidic tinge of the orange juice she had washed them down with. She stifled a gag. Her scalp tingled under the wig as the humid air poured into the aircraft cabin. It had been a spontaneous thing, the wig, but now she was glad for it. It made her feel jaunty, in control, and it was one more layer of camouflage. The seatbelt signs pinged off and passengers began opening the overhead compartments. With the sound, Nice felt she had met another milestone in her trip and she lapsed into an expressionless good humor, even allowing herself a languorous rub of her tummy without self-consciousness or hurry, as pregnant women are wont to do. A bearded man in the aisle seat on her left stood up, knocking Nice's reading glasses with her elbow. I straightened the glasses and gave her neighbor a half smile. She was getting useful insights from her debilitating morning sickness. For one, it focused the mind on important things, which for her now was not to not vomit into this man's lap and to get off the plane into the cool Nairobi evening. Nice stood to look down the aisle to the exit. She took a pained breath, watched the harried parents, the mewling infant, the cowled and bird-boned Somali women, and the pinstripe businessman exhaling self-importance in the cloistered cabin. The bearded man gestured shyly at Nice with his hands. 
cupping what seemed to be an invisible offering. This perplexed Nice until she thought to fumble at her nose. Her nostril bled onto her upper lip, unseen, unfelt, ruffled. She turned away to her shuttered window. She fumbled, fumbled for a sharp-smelling moist towelette in the front pouch of her seat. The skin around her nostril burned as she dabbed at it. She opened the shutter of her window and watched the bearded man in the plastic reflection, only turning to exit the plane when his wavy ghost had entered the aisle, turning to look at her one last time. Under the harsh lighting of the arrivals hall, Nice caught sight of herself in a mirrored wall, a wispy yet feminine frame under a fashionable head of hair. Aid worker, smuggler, time bomb. The gaunt face tightened, and she leaned forward, resting her hands on denim knees. She seemed to herself unworthy of such terms such as mother or even pregnant. Those were for other people, pushing strollers in sun-dappled suburbs. The dizziness passed. Nice turned to enter the immigration line, bumping as she did so into an unseen person behind her. The tall policeman looked bemused and smiled, but only with his mouth. His teeth were small and gleamed under the fluorescence. Hakuna Shida, are you okay? All right, that's a nice uh, little <laughs> intro to what's going to be a thrilling ride. I, I enjoyed reading the book, but he said something there. I wanted to bounce it off my fellow novelist here. Um, his chapter one didn't end up being his chapter one. It got thrown out. Let's let's talk about that, Misha, as a as an instructor and a novelist. Best case scenario, I feel like <laughs> if someone tells you to cut it, then absolutely you want to hit the ground running. Yeah, yeah. It's it's and Sarah, is that was true for you too as well? Yeah, I feel like that's something I've heard a number of writers say is that they end up writing a first chapter or prologue or something, and then they end up just cutting it. And it might be a helpful exercise for yourself to write that out and kind of figure out the backstory and get yourself sort of geared up into the writing. But then you might find that it's more interesting to just jump right in and start the story kind of in the middle of the action. I think uh, listeners have heard me say this before, but I heard this from a New York editor one time, not to me, but just talking into the universe there, that uh, he said he gave advice to someone. He said, I really love your novel, but uh, it begins on page 50. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it is true because you start writing, uh, you, you feel like you need to, uh, to write everything in a linear fashion and to start off, you know, with this sort of background and explanation. But, you know, readers are pretty smart, right? They can figure mm-hmm. stuff out and you don't have, to, don't have to give everything to them, do you? No, my yeah. suit... My students will say, we don't have enough room. You know, our 15 page submission isn't enough. And I think if I don't know what that character wants and why they can't have it in 15 pages, then the, then the structuring is off. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You might be surprised at how much you can actually fill in along the way as you tell the story, as opposed to feeling like you have to lay it all out up front. Yeah, okay, Akbar, well, thank you for that uh, jump start on a little craft talk there before we jump. And speaking of inspiration, let's. Uh, I asked him this question. I asked him to talk about the inspiration for the book and also why Nairobi, and here's what he had to say. I had always grown up in, I guess, the West, uh, mainly in Europe and North America, and, and I didn't realize how much I'd gotten accustomed to um, the state helping me out. You know, people in um, like crossing guards and drinking water being uh, flowing from the taps and, and all these things that we take for granted. Um, and Nairobi was the first place where I saw a manhole cover off and, you know, an eight foot drop into what looked like raw sewage. 
and I peeked into it holding my little girl's hand and I was like, oh, I wonder when the authorities are going to come and you know, put a little tape around this or I'm scary that no one's standing here. But that's such a metaphor for um, all the stuff that we take for granted. Um, and it's also a good metaphor for the secret worlds that lie beneath our feet without us knowing of it, but for uh, the grace of God and luck and middle-class status and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's a big theme in this story. And indeed all the stories that I love is how, if I take away your optionalities and the luxury of choice, would you be stealing food? Would you be trampling people on your, in a riot? I know I couldn't answer those questions faithfully uh, about myself. I've never been tested like that. The title of the book took a long time. For a long time, the title, the working title was Good People Doing Bad Things for Good Reasons. Um, but then I was a little bit more inspired um, to look at the conversations that we have about what is truth. Um, and a lot of these things are very, very relative. And we're seeing it now in today's uh, democracy uh, in America, um, where your truth and my truth may differ radically. Um, and it's also a concept which requires a certain reverence because uh, it's vulnerable, it's slow, it's statistically improbable, much like a bird without flight. And it travels much slower than um, things which are not the truth. Um, and if you read the end, you'll understand that the notion of truth is really what we're able to reconcile to ourselves and be able to sleep at night. That truly is our definition of truth um, or my definition of truth. I think that's a, that's a notion which is uh, universal. Yeah, a lot of good stuff there, but on the craft side, he mentions book titles. Let's just riff on that a second. Uh, Misha, was uh, your book, Man-Made Constellations, did it have that title at the beginning? Yeah, it was probably what I started oh, wow. with. <laughs> I know that's rare, but I've been writing this book for a long time because it was the first book I ever started writing and then quit for a long time and, and wrote another uh, manuscript through grad school. So I, it was kind of the idea of fireflies in a jar. Yeah, no, we'll, and we'll talk more about that. Sarah, yours, the plus one. Was it always the plus one? No, actually, my working title for it was, I believe, how to make and kill the perfect man, which is pretty different <laughs> from the sounds, plus one. <laughs> that sounds better, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, it was, when I first wrote the book, it was a little bit more kind of hard-edged and satirical, more leaning into the comedy. And then when I would start working with the publisher, they lean more into the romance side of the, the rom-com equation. Um, and so I think the plus one ended up being a, a better title for the market that they were gearing it towards. So it was a, it was a pretty big shift tonally, um, that I think it's a reflection of the title. I think it's a good exercise uh, for authors when they're writing their books is to just make a list of about 10, yeah. 15 names. And if you think about it, if you go look at books on shelves, you know, most of them have like two words, you know, there's man-made constellations. There's, I've learned now there's deadly declarations. You know, it's like, <laughs> if, and then you, even some of them just are one word. I remember one of John Hart's books was hush, you know, or something. I, I So it's just like, uh, you know, but then there you see these titles that run off the end of the book cover <laughs> you wonder how do they even process that before they look at the next book yeah. but, uh, how about deadly declarations was that your working title no i had a bunch of title i mean originally i i had uh titles that tied into the mech deck and it was sort of uh you know the mech deck murders or something and i thought well, no, people aren't gonna know what the mech deck is necessarily so 
uh, I, I felt like I, I knew more. And I, when I started sharing around with people, I got some good feedback on that and uh, made it more of a national thing with declarations, both the, the Declaration of Independence and then the MECDEC. So, but it's a process. It is a process. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, a little more context for this book, too. Um, you heard in the beginning, uh, uh, Nice is the, she's fleeing her Somali drug-dealing boyfriend, um, and she's coming to Nairobi, and she's going to try to involve one of her oldest friends who's now an American pastor uh, heading up a church in Nairobi. And, of course, you know from the opening read that she's carrying these packets of uh these drugs and um, she's doing it because she's trying to look after her children. But um, it's, uh, I had a question for him related to this issue of Obama because I read the book and Obama never showed up. And I said, uh, you know, what gives there? And here's what he had to say. Where is he? Why do we never meet him? Why does he never show up in the story? Um, And I think that's kind of the whole point um, here is that what's arriving is his shadow. Um, And ultimately there is no Obama and there is no one coming to save you. Um, And there is no single truth. So you can find that disorienting and depressing and frightening, or you can be empowered by it. And there really is a a no contest in those two situations. Um, and, And you may be inspired by someone's words or someone's actions but it's for you to act uh, and it's for you to take that, um, take on that, um, that, that confidence. So I think that's a very important theme. Um, and in fact, one of the characters, one of my favorite characters even says, there is no Obama, um, there's no cavalry. You're in this foxhole alone. Um, and that is to my mind, a clarion call for courage and conviction rather than um, doom and gloom. Yeah, I know I'm getting ahead of myself here, uh, Misha, but there's a little bit of that in your book. Your your characters don't have anybody coming to help them out. They've got they're they're on this journey all alone, right? Yeah, I really appreciate his comment and what he's saying, both on a personal level and on a fiction level. But there is something to the fact, uh, without giving too much away, the characters don't have a lot of support coming from from around them whether they chose to be that way or whether that's just the situation that they found themselves in and so it really at a certain point in our lives we either have to kind of fall victim to that where we circumstance or decide to take action well uh, one thing about the story and i thought the title uh, truth is a flight of the spirit related more to these uh creatures uh these storks that are in the book. I had no idea that storks were as big and scary looking uh, <laughs> as they are. Uh, but uh, they're, they're, they're kind of like uh, rabid dogs walking, you know, the streets and they're hanging out and they're eating the garbage. And anyway, I asked him about, the, I asked him about the storks and here's what he had to say. As to the storks, those marabou storks truly um, exist. Um, you can Google them. They look medieval and ferocious. They're there in the story as sort of a two-part. One is they're kind of like uh, 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 familiars, uh, to use like a word, you know, Shakespearean word, I guess, or a Victorian word, uh, which is sort of um, this is kind of a gendered term, um, um, a witch or a wizard. Um, she, these are her CCTV in the sky. So they, they embody her presence uh, dematerialized 
all over the place. Uh, so that's one level on which they're there for. Uh, and then the other level is it is not so dissimilar from some of the notions of uh, religion or um, spirituality that were talked about, which is you should behave yourself because someone is watching. Um, but the flip side of that is, would you behave differently if that CCTV in the sky was turned off? I should hope not, because that's the definition of an ethical person, in my opinion, is someone who behaves the same, whether they're parents or the policeman or the CCTV. Um, you know, when you, when you, uh, how would you behave if you behave very, very differently? Uh, in when one of those things is not there, I would question um, the integrity of your decision-making paradigm. I can tell you this: if you take a look at that thing, y'all Google these creatures because uh, if it if it means. Uh you know, behaving yourself so they don't, you know, attack you, then, you know, <laughs> behave yourself on the streets. <laughs> because uh, I always thought storks, you know, they were just little fun creatures that delivered babies, but I guess not. They're, uh, they're out there. They're out there uh, stalking people. Um, I guess we're used to like pigeons in our cities here, not storks. <laughs> they're like five feet tall and a wingspan of about four or five feet. It's ridiculous. Wow. You know? So anyway, Google that. It'll disabuse you of the notion of the happy stork delivering, <laughs> delivering the babies. Uh, well, we've got uh, the last thing we got. We always ask uh, our writers, whether we do uh, live interviews or through SpeakPipe, uh, to give us some uh, writing advice from their own experiences. And uh, uh, we asked him uh, about uh, that. And here's what he had to say. Advice for a debut novelist. I mean, I think here <laughs> there's too much to really fit into this. But the big takeaway is you know, have fun with it, be obsessed with it, and don't ask for too much feedback. For me, uh, really, the feedback that I was getting was towards the very, very, very end of the process, because my my reflex in the end was to kill everyone, all the characters. And I was told that's not a very satisfying ending, and you've broken your promise to the reader. So um, wait for feedback, wait until you're sure. All right, so that that's, that's a good prompt for us. Uh, let's start there. Misha, what do you think? I love that. I mean, I've had the opposite experience because I did the MA program here at UNC Charlotte. So I was constantly getting feedback and then I did the MFA program at NC State. So my experience is different, but I like that advice in the sense that we have to trust ourselves and our voice. And depending on whose feedback you're getting, they might not be the right reader or who who knows why people feel certain ways or what they pr projecting fear or <laughs> they don't agree with the content. So if it's something along those lines, I think keep it close, keep it safe. That's good advice. Yeah. Sarah. Yeah, I think that's totally true. Um, and, you know, some writers have the opposite problem where they don't really get any feedback. And I think it is important to get feedback for sure. But I'm in a bunch of writers groups. I have a lot of writers friends I trade notes with. Um, so I tend to get a lot of feedback and I, I find that very valuable. But you do also have to really be careful about sticking to your original vision for the work and knowing what you want it to be um, and kind of knowing who you are as a writer and what your strengths and weaknesses are because you're never going to write something that works for everyone and it happens to me all the time that I'll get directly contradictory feedback on something I'll have two people read something and give me you know the exact opposite opinions on it so you, I think if you're getting a lot of feedback you have to kind of know how to navigate through that and pick and choose what you're going to use or sometimes people will talk about like listening for the note behind the note like maybe you don't necessarily agree with the exact advice that they're giving, but you can try to figure out, okay, well, why are they feeling this way? Is there something else I could change here to make it better that fits within what I want for the project? 
Um, so it can be it can be a little overwhelming if you get a lot of other voices in your head as you're writing. And sometimes it, it might help to do kind of like what Akbar did here, where he waited until later in the process to get that feedback and he knew where he was going with the story first. I think you need uh, strong uh, defensive gear when you go into one of those MA, MFA style. I mean, I, I didn't get an MFA, but I've been to some conferences where they have an MFA model, you know, where you got 12 people sitting around in a circle. And it's kind of like, uh, I liken it to sort of bull in the ring when I played football. You know, there's one person in the middle, everybody else is taking shots at them, you know, and uh, that's the kind of what it does. And everybody feels like they got to take their shots, you know, so they're going to say something. And if you listen too hard, I mean, I think it was Steve Barry. Steve, I apologize for what you said. You know, you get writing groups are invaluable, but you know, seventy percent of what you hear is worthless. But thirty percent are real gems. So you just have to sit there and you know be attentive, not argue, but at the same time know that uh, you know it's your story, right? And you want to get some great feedback if you can, but don't let it stop you from writing, right? Oh yeah, it's tough. I I had interviewed Courtney Mom, the writer, recently, and she said that she's done those kind of um, workshops, but in the end, refused to let anyone else speak. <laughs> and she just did that. She said, "You listen, the other writers, while I do this, because it can be." turn into an ego thing or right. a defensive, like my work must be better. So, I, you know, um, but I've been lucky to have really uh, positive experiences, but I've heard horror stories for sure. Yeah. Well, the point is uh, you should listen to feedback, uh, but you don't have to listen to everything. And uh, you know, it's uh, it's like listening to people who review your work. Uh I mean, some people like to read certain kinds of books. Some people like to read other kinds of books. And just because they don't like your book doesn't mean you're not, it's not a well-written book. So, you know, keep that yeah, in mind. Yeah, nothing you write is going to be for everyone. So you kind of find out who your audience is over time, I think. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, good segue to uh, book recommendations uh, right after this. If you like what we're doing and would like to help us defray the cost of this podcast, please consider becoming one of our patrons through the Patreon website. For as little as $5 a month, say a coffee or a happy hour drink, you can help us out. And in return, we have a library of exclusive episodes, over 120, that you can access through the Patreon website. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Weir's podcast and join up. You can cancel any time, by the way, and we thank you in advance for whatever you decide to contribute. Doesn't uh, Sarah have that perfect voice for that? Yeah. It's so soothing. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay, Sarah, with that uh, prop, you get to go first on the book recommendations. Yeah. So lately I've been reading um, a short story collection called The Figure in the Glass and Other Stories by Barbara Kremen. And this was actually initially recommended to me by my mom, who knew um, the husband of the author for years. And it was published by uh, Horse and Buggy Press, who is a small press in Durham. I think they've worked with other great North Carolina writers like Jill McCorkle and Joseph Devante. Um, and the, the writer, Barbara Kremen, was actually 99 years old when this book was published. I think it was her first book. I believe she might have published um, some shorter pieces and journals over the years, but I think this was her first whole book that she had published. And then she actually passed away a, a couple months ago at age 100. Um, but I think it's just amazing that she you know, had a book published at 99. And um, so I've been reading this collection. So far, I've just read the, the title story, The Figure in the Glass, which is actually more like a novella. It's like maybe 70 pages or so. 
Um, and it's about a boy who's in an illustration in a book and then he comes out of the book and is like trapped in the real world and, and gets lost. But her writing is, is really beautiful, really imaginative and reflective. Um, I think she spent on some of these stories like decades working on the writing, working on the research, um, doing a lot of research on the natural world, which is something that comes into play in a lot of the stories. So it's just really writing to kind of sink into and immerse yourself into. It's very detailed. It's very imaginative. Um, so I definitely recommend this for anyone looking to check out great North Carolina writer. Right. All right. Misha, what do you got for us? Um, this is the third time I've read this book, so I highly recommend it. Um, no Gods, No Monsters by Cadwell Turnbull. He's a, at NC State, a professor now. He got his MFA there. Um, and I had my students read it this semester. And, and before that, I had listened to it and also read it and, and interviewed Cadwell about his book, too. And so I, it's a really cool premise. There are monsters in the world. That's kind of the secret, you know, when you don't know there's magic. And then all of a sudden, it's kind of revealed to the, the culture and the culture is trying to grapple with that. And there's underlying messages and um, mirrors to the real world, racism and inclusion and, and the kind of processing what's what's different and how we either embrace it or attack it um, or some non-duality in between. But it's really interesting. And it's a, going to be a trilogy. So the first one is out and he's turning in the second one. And because he is my friend, <laughs> I'm telling him that, you know, there's this cat God in the, it's like a sassy house cat. <laughs> and I'm just begging for more of the cat God in the following. <laughs> but I reckon it's a really cool book. That's great. I'm glad you're able to recommend that book to your friend <laughs> there too. That's great. And, uh, you know, I was, Sarah and I have been recording like crazy. And um, I went to Ireland recently and I read Misha's book on the plane coming back uh, that we're going to talk about today. So, I gotten kind of behind with everything that's going on. So I went to Park Road Books and got some recommendations. And uh, one of the ones that uh, jumped off <laughs> the shelf at me, the title alone. Okay, listen to this title. A Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, a novel by Grady <laughs> Hendricks. I think, what the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. It's supposed <laughs> to be funny. It's sort of one of the blurbs is Steel Magnolias meets Dracula in this New York Times bestselling horror novel about a woman's book club that must do battle with a mysterious newcomer to their small Southern town. <laughs> okay. I got to read that book. That's uh that's too good. Um, but uh, yeah, so good stuff there from Parker books. And uh, we've got a recommendation now from storied Charlotte blog, Mark West at uh, uh, UNC Charlotte. Hello, this is Mark West with the storied Charlotte blog. My book recommendation today is a new historical novel called Song of Redemption by a Charlotte writer whose name is Malika J. Steveley. Song of Redemption is Malika's debut novel, but she is not a novice writer. She has worked as a journalist and communications specialist. And in the process of writing this novel, she has drawn on her background in journalism, especially the investigative side of journalism. Most of this novel takes place on a plantation in Louisiana during the years just before the Civil War. But the opening chapter, which is based on a true event, takes place in 1932. What happens in this opening chapter is that a group of construction workers are hard at work fixing up an old plantation house 
when they discover behind one of the walls the body of a woman. This really happened, and Malika talked to the construction worker who discovered the body. What Malika does in this book is give this woman a voice. It's based on actual history. She did a tremendous amount of research. She traveled to Louisiana. She talked to all sorts of people. She did a lot of historical research. It's all based on real events and captures what life was like for enslaved people in Louisiana at this time. The character is based on a real person and her name is Danielle. I highly recommend this book. And if you want to know more about the book, you have an opportunity to talk to Malika at our upcoming Charlotte Readers Book Club at That's Novel Bookstore, which will take place tomorrow at 5.30. I'll be there and I hope to see you then. Thank you. Bye. And I'll be there too. It's uh, November 9th, uh, 5.30 at uh, That's Not All the Books out at Camp North End. Uh, uh, come out. It's, it's, folks, it's the book club where you don't have to read the book. Uh, that's, you know, you just show up and <laughs> you can ask questions and learn learn more about it. And we've got this partnership with That's Not All the Books as well, where Alyssa was a co-host with us. She, she calls in with book recommendations. Here's her latest uh, recommendation for us. Hello, Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is Alyssa with That's Novel Books, and I'm so excited to be back here giving you guys another book recommendation. One of the best books I read in October was A Court of Thorns and Roses by Sarah J. Mass. I know that this has been a super popular book. I've seen it all over Book Talk and Bookstagram for months, uh, if not years now, and I'm here to tell you it lives up to the hype. I was very drawn into the story very quickly. I was uh, committed to the end. I don't think it's the most amazing book I've ever read, but it was a really enjoyable read. So I highly recommend it. And I'm looking forward to reading book two here pretty soon. All right, listeners. Well, that's our book recommendations uh, for this week. Uh, but uh, like uh, we've been uh, promoting, uh, we've got this thing now where authors can make uh, their elevator pitches. And you know, you don't even have to, be approved to be on the show as long as uh you know it's you know we don't get too far afield with the content i mean we don't have a pg rating but uh, you know how it is anyway <laughs> uh you know there's a link there at our website on the contact page if you're an author out there you've written a book and you want to promote it uh hone your 30 second elevator pitch it's not that easy i mean to do and so this is a good way for you to practice it uh and we've got one today uh who, someone who took us up on it uh kathy daniels and uh She's been on the podcast, but she's got a new book coming out. And uh, let's see how she did with her 30-second elevator pitch. Hi, this is R. Kathy Daniels, and my new novel is Purple Sparkly Volvo Dust. And this is my attempt at a 30-second pitch. So here goes. I need an agent who would love a protagonist like Amadea, a woman in a high-powered job who, in a desperate grief recovery effort, walks out of her gated community and into homelessness. As she navigates this bleak terrain, she's threatened by a group of teens. But when Amadea delivers a 13-year-old's baby, she wins the teens' trust and is accepted into their world. Teens are savvy, though, and eventually discover she's not who she proclaims to be. 
How will Amadea navigate this breach of trust and the yawning gap between homelessness and wealth? And does she want to bridge back through her grief to her former life? All right. What do you think, folks? That sounds great. It sounds like a really creative set of characters. Um, and we had Kathy on the podcast, I think, early in the summer for her book Live Caught, which is really well written. So I definitely am happy to see anything that she's working on. Yeah, and I'm happy that she's, uh, you know, it, it ta- it's got to be, you take a little bravery, you know, to do this, do your 30-second pitch and just try it out on people. And uh, it's yeah. great to to do that because, you know, when you ask somebody what their book's about and five minutes later, they're still talking, they haven't really <laughs> thought about the question, <laughs> you know. So think about that question, listeners. Uh, if you've got a book and we got some tips on the website for how to do it, uh, there's an article there somebody wrote that I thought was pretty good. We put that link there. So go there and try it out. And uh, all right, uh, Sarah, we've got um, some listener engagement as well this week, right? Yeah, um, Joe Conjol, who actually participated on the show recently with a blog post, um, has also given us some good comments on Instagram. He mentioned a book recommendation, um, Geller's Find by Sandra Cox. So definitely check that out. And he also left us a nice comment about um, our recent episode 311. He said, Listen to this terrific interview today. Jennifer McMahon has great energy and an amazingly dark mind. Love listening to Hannah fangirling a bit over one of her favorite authors. Both ladies provided a fun, entertaining, and engaging interview. This book is now on my TBR list. Um, so great feedback there. Thanks for listening. And we're glad that you enjoyed Hannah's interview and that we're able to have her, you know, still on the show even while she's out for a little bit. Um, yeah, it was a great interview. So we're glad that you enjoyed it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We're missing the fangirl right now. She's <laughs> I'm taking care of that uh, young baby. Yeah, um, she's she's busy. <laughs> that's she. Um, all right. Well, uh, we're going to do some craft stuff in just a moment. But first, this. If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottemeaderspodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits. But with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play or participate in an author or marketing talk or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750 word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. All right, we're in Act 3, and uh, we're going to start out with uh, the Charlotte uh, Lit uh, two-minute tip. We have Paul Reale uh, with a tip this week on how much detail to put in a scene. So uh, we'll listen to that, and then we'll talk about it. Paul Reale from Charlotte Lit with a two-minute writing tip for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Writers can sometimes get bogged down in the question of how much detail to put into a scene or into a moment. Here's a technique the writer Reginald Dwayne Betts taught during a masterclass at Charlotte Lit. In any scene you're writing, start with a very simple sentence, then rewrite it in multiple passes, adding just a little bit of detail each time. Here's an example. He walked to the store. Now we'll rewrite that sentence, adding one or two, no more than two additional bits of detail. In the morning, after having his breakfast, he walked to the store. Now rewrite the sentence again, adding no more than two additional details. In the morning, after a breakfast of sausage and eggs, he walked to the corner grocery store. Now let's do it again. In the too bright morning sun, 
After a breakfast of sausage and eggs, he walked to the corner grocery store. And again, in the too bright morning sun, after a breakfast of sausage and eggs, he walked to the corner grocery store to purchase a six-pack of Corona Light to get him through to dinner time. By running through this sentence four or five or more times, you'll add layers of richness. At some point, you'll have enough detail and maybe we'll want to even trim it back to its essence and maybe exchange one detail for another. Here's our final version for this example, which becomes two sentences. In the too bright morning, while it was still barely morning, he ate a breakfast of the last sausage and eggs in the apartment, then walked to the corner grocery to purchase a six-pack of Corona Light, which would be his lunch and his dinner. You can do this, of course, with any sentence. So here's your action step. Take any scene where you're having difficulty visualizing it or in which you don't know what or how much to tell and try writing one very simple sentence and then rewriting it multiple times, adding one detail or two at each pass. For more two-minute tips from Charlotte Litt, listen to Beyond 300 episodes of this podcast or visit charlottelitt.org slash tips. All right, Misha, we just come up with a new uh, prompt you can use for your students here. I was thinking that same thing. Yeah. <laughs> I Yeah, that was fascinating. I thought it was really cool. One thing that I was thinking when I teach my students about detail is, uh, of course, it must be filtered through the character. And so I felt like this exercise did a great job, right? Obviously, he's drinking. He might be hungover right now. So the sunlight is too bright you know, and then the Corona light, he's apparently got some taste. <laughs> he's going for the Corona and it's gotta be light, but it's gonna be his dinner or his lunch and his dinner. And so we're really learning a lot about the character through the detail. And I think that is key. I don't make my work so conscious. I don't think I'm a little more maybe intuitive and kind of flow. So this is a little bit rocking my boat, but, <laughs> but I think that it's really cool, really good advice. Sarah. Yeah, I think that was fascinating how it started with something that was so spare. And by the end, it felt like it was almost a whole story in one or two sentences. And you really got a sense of what was going on with this character um, and how by building on the right details, they can kind of interact with each other. Like first, I think he introduced the the two bright morning sun, which then once you find out about the fact that he's probably kind of hungover takes on a whole new meaning. Um, so the, the details kind of layer on top of each other. And yeah, I'm like Misha, like I probably wouldn't do this every time I sit down to write a sentence. Um, I just kind of let it flow a little bit more, but I think if you're kind of stuck in a scene, it could be a great exercise or just as a prompt, if you just kind of want to get creative, kind of get started in a writing session, I think it's a great idea. Yeah. I felt like you learned a lot about the character, you know, through this last revision, uh, a bit of loneliness there, you know, it's just sort of the day ahead of him is going to be long. And it reminds me of somebody, I don't know, I can't remember who said it, but somebody said when they're talking about craft, you know, the show, not tell thing, you don't have to say somebody's sad or depressed. You can just put some wine bottles in the trash can, you know? <laughs> <laughs> three or four wine bottles in the trash can that morning. And, and that the other thing I thought about that, to be honest here is that uh, I thought, if I did that, I'd never finish a novel, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and maybe, though, the idea is that you look at those sentences more closely in your, some of your rewrites, and you can do it then, because if you, if, you, if you stopped and did that 
for something longer than flash fiction, you would probably be stuck at your desk for quite a while, but it's great advice. And I love the way it kind of demonstrates um, what you can do from taking a plain sentence and just adding a few words and a few phrases and give a whole lot of meaning there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to go from uh, this uh, great tip from Charlotte Litt to uh, one of our community blog posts. And let me just remind the listeners that, uh, you know, if you've written anything, um, you are a writer. And if you've got something to share, some knowledge experience, uh, uh, and you'd like to do it in 750 words or less, and um, we don't pay you for that, but we put your, uh, if we accept your post, we put it up on the website, we put you in the newsletter, and we talk about you on the podcast. So uh, if you're a writer out there and you want to share some of what you've learned with our community, uh, we'd love to have you do that. Uh, we've got Brian Mitchell who shared uh, on blitz writing. Sir, you want to introduce Brian for us? Yeah, so Brian is an Army veteran. He's a husband, a father, a brother, and a writer. Um, his first novel is called Infernal Fall. It's a fantasy novel. I believe he gave us a an elevator pitch for that on the podcast, so you can listen to that a couple episodes back. Um, it came out on October 25th of this year. He has a BA in English and an MS in computer science, and sometimes he'll also pick up a guitar. Um, he says he loves reading, but not while horseback riding, which is probably good a good approach to life. <laughs> Good, I'm all good. for reading, but not not while you're on horse. <laughs> and the reason uh, we chose to put this in this particular episode early in November is because uh, this is Nano Reno. What is it? Nano Nano Rimo. It's write as hard as you can and fast as you can and do it in 30 days, kind of thing. And if you mm -hmm. write about 1,600 words a day, then you can have 50,000 words at the end of the month or something, which is close to a short novel um, or at least a novella. So there are a lot of people out there scribbling away uh, starting November 1st, uh, uh, and we're about eight days into that with this release. So let's hear what Brian has to say about Blitz writing. Hello, I'm Brian Timothy Mitchell, and I'm here to talk to you about Blitz Day, or Blitz writing. <laughs> Every November 1st, writers line up at a starting line with one plan in mind write like crazy for the next 30 days. They call it NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month. Did you know that at 5,000 words a day, you'd have 75,000 words written in just 15 days? That kind of progress is amazing and hard to sustain. At least for me, sane people, yes, I said it, sane people, those people who are not insane, don't have time to write like that. Most people average 500 words a day, which means they'd finish 75,000 words in 150 days, which is five months. If you think about it, that's not all that sane either. I'd rather finish sooner. Tomorrow would be nice, but I'll settle for three months. What can a writer do to finish the rough draft and not feel like it took them a half a year to do so? We need to have blitz days. My plan is to have one blitz day a week. My current rough draft is sitting at 16,000 words. I'll chip at it with 500 words here, maybe 400 or 600 words there. But when my blitz day comes, I'm going full-blown Looney Tunes on it. I'll let the people in my life know what I'm up to so they'll know why I'm talking to myself and sporting an Albert Einstein hairdo. 
I'll have my notebook on hand and my laptop to carry around with me. Though I usually do some revising before getting into new territory, I'll make a point to only focus on the new territory. Here's the thing. I can sit in front of a keyboard and look at an empty Word document for hours. The Charlotte Readers Podcast has a great show that talks about procrastination and how it can actually help, but Blitz Day isn't the day for that. I won't procrastinate on a Blitz Day, and I'll avoid the triggers that causes me to do so. Each week, as I'm dialing up the story and revising along the way, writing 500 words or so each day. I'll also make plans for the Blitz Day. I'll have several scenes in mind and I'll write them as clearly as I can on the first sweep. When I finish them, I'll see how I did on my word count. And if it happens to be 1,000 words, I will fill in some more details on those scenes. But if I reach 5,000 words, and there's still time to do more, I may get a jump start on revising and editing. Then again, if I'm ready for the next scene, I may keep on going. While the laptop will be essential, the notebook and pencil will be just as important. Maybe a dictionary too, because new ideas pop up all the time. I use notebooks to keep records on my work, and if a new idea changes a story, I'll use that notebook so I can make changes whenever it's necessary. That won't stop all logical errors, but it'll help. I won't put a cap on my Blitz Day word count goal, but I hope that it's astronomical. 1,000 words won't be enough. That's just doubling my daily average. But 2,000 words isn't too bad. If I hit 5,000 words, I'll reward myself with a chocolate milkshake. My plan is to do this on Saturday. I'll get up early and get going before the rest of the house does. My long-term goal is to complete my current rough draft by the end of National Novel Writing Month. I know it's doable. Who knows, I may finish this Saturday if my fingers don't fall off. It'll be a little difficult to type my toes and a little too ridiculous to do so with my nose. Of course, I could use dictation software to get it done, but I do prefer to type. Good luck to you on your writing journeys. Thank you. Sounds like Brian's been up late, you know, working, working hard. <laughs> His fingers and toes and nose and everything. Taking with his nose now. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, that's, I think I'd reward myself with something more than a milkshake after 5,000 words, you know, but uh, uh, good for you, uh, Brian. That, 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 I don't know, folks, what do you think? Uh, this, has anyone ever tried this na national writing month thing? No, I, I have friends who do it every year. I've never actually tried it. Um, actually, a little side note on NaNoWriMo. I heard recently that there's a, a TV show in development that's basically like NaNoWriMo, the TV show. <laughs> like, I think it's it's actually put together by some of the people who run the NaNoWriMo organization. Um, but it's like a reality show about novel writers where people, I guess, somehow audition to get on the show. And then they're like, in a, a retreat for 30 days and they write their books and they have challenges along the way, which sounds, I don't know, <laughs> I have mixed feelings about this, but it sounds interesting. Um, but yeah, I've, I've never done NaNoWriMo, but I think that 
you know, it works for a lot of people. It, it can be a great way to not necessarily finish an entire book. You're probably going to have to do more drafts, but to just really push yourself in that kind of blitz mode and get as much as possible down on the page um, and just kind of keep going and not revising along the way. I think for a lot of people, it's a great way to jumpstart a project. Yeah, I think he said a lot of great things. The the first, like two things, the procrastination was really interesting to me because I do believe procrastination can be useful, but he specifically said he's going into this with scenes in mind. And I feel like that's when the procrastination is useful because these scenes are forming and you're you're not necessarily writing them down, but they're percolating and taking shape. And then when you do sit down to do the NaNoWriMo, which I've never done either, or a Blitz Day, I think then you're saying, okay, the scenes are in my mind. I've done the procrastination thinking time, and now it's time to no excuses, get him out. And so I feel like if if you are someone who maybe is, finding that they're not always getting the words on the page or something is keeping you away from the keyboard, some kind of fear or procrastination, then it seems like that's a good balance to strike. Yeah. And I, I like the idea that he's going to commit to a day, which sounds like he's going to write more and longer on that day and not necessarily be worried about the word count, but if it gets up to a certain word count, he's going to have his milkshake. Good for you, Brian. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but, you know, this idea, I think sometimes people, when they say, I'm going to write every day and they get frustrated if they don't reach their, you know, 500 or a thousand words or whatever. Um, I'm a little bit of a blitz writer too, because I don't write every day, but sometimes I'll write a lot of words in a week, you know, because I go to my cabin and I just recluse and I go at it, you know, but, but to your point there, Misha, I can't be in a position to do that until I've thought about some things ahead of time, you know, and so I think everybody's different. Um, I think this is a good construct. It's uh, certainly, uh, you know, if you the kind of person that likes to run a marathon every now and then or something, you know, mm -hmm. and you're, you're into that thing, then give Nano Remo, Remo a try. And uh, I guess I'm stumbling all over pronouncing <laughs> Rimo Remo. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, let's, let's do that. And then Brian, we want to thank you for, uh, for that, uh, post and that inspiration to get out there and write a lot of words and uh listeners uh send us your blog post and we'll get it up there uh and uh we'll be right back uh after this with uh misha and her book and more craft talk so here we go we have a newsletter called beyond 300 and we'd love to have you sign up this is where we share what's coming on the podcast provide helpful links and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts you can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, Misha, well, you've been patient with us with, with us interviewing you about your book. Uh, we're going to uh, ask you to be a little more patient before, before we dive into your book, and you're welcome to provide examples as we go along. Before we dive into that, uh, which is the book I really like, by the way, Man Made Constellations, we're going to talk a little craft, uh, novel discussions. Uh, you teach fiction. You can see Charlotte's find out a little bit about your background, how you found your way to that, and sort of what you teach and what your interests are in teaching. Um, my undergrad was English literature, but I didn't do creative writing at all. I took no creative writing class. I did a lot of Shakespeare and Middle English and Chaucer, as one does, and um, grammar and, and things like that. And so much more liter literature based. And then I got married right out of college and started a family and took eight years off. And I wrote Man-Made Constellations during that time. I tried. 
I did not write it. I tried to write it. And then because I struggled so much, I had read a lot, but I hadn't read a ton of contemporary fiction. And I, I did not know how to, I didn't know how to write. I'll just, and so I went back to school and I was just going to get my, actually my English degree so I could teach maybe literature uh, with an MA, you know, at CPCC or something like that. And then I took a class with Erin Gwynn and I'd always wanted to be a writer and it was my first class and I just decided this is what I got to go into the creative writing program. And so I, I, I didn't know how much there was to learn about writing. I think that that's sort of a common myth, especially when you're younger to think that it's a, something you're born with and then you should be able to do it or you, or you shouldn't and immediately began realizing how much there was to learn about it, which is which really inspired me. And so after that, I went to get my MFA because teaching was kind of always um, on my mind. And so I went to NC State, had a wonderful time, um, still never worked on Man Made Constellations, was working on a different World War II historical fiction. And um, then the pandemic happened. And so we were home. I have three kids and I was homeschooling, you know, doing the homeschool thing. And the the research and the historical fiction story wasn't really coming together. And so I went back to this draft and, and it was finished. So I just like rewrote it from the beginning and I'd already gotten a little bit of feedback on it at UNC Charlotte one semester I had workshopped it and then switched. So I just, I workshopped it a little bit at NC state and then sent out the manuscript to find an agent and got one pretty quick. Um, sold it to Blackstone before I graduated and then uh, went, got in touch with, UNC Charlotte because we moved back from Raleigh and and then I found myself there so I'm teaching intro to fiction and advanced fiction workshops that's great well Aaron Gwynn was on our podcast and he, he read a fabulous book all God's children mm-hmm. um and uh he's, he has a lot of interesting things to share as well so that's an, a, an interesting journey you took um which is kind of a good segue because you talked about how long it took you and we, we're going to get into the book I promise you but you talk about how much you uh writing the book uh one of the topics you said is near and dear to you and you wrote an, you created an entire course around it is finding the discipline to finish that first draft so let's start there because you told us that you kind of went into it and out of it into it and yes. out of it that's right i think once i well it was interesting to hear the blog post be read to say that finishing a draft in five months seems too long <laughs> because <laughs> i think that's reasonable, but I do understand the point he's making is that sometimes that can turn into never getting, sitting down and never working on it. And it keeps getting, you know, so I like the idea behind the NaNoWriMo because it really gets you sitting down. And I think another thing I really liked about the blog post is he said, it's you're generating new ideas. And I do think that that's if you know the story you want to tell and you're you have that kind of vision then it may be that percolating and um, procrastinating is part of the process but if you're more the writer who's going to sit down and just see where the story leads then you have to sit down and write it there's no other way and because that writing can generate new ideas and so I think that my process is different than than that one so I think everyone's so different but I do think if you sit down and write three to five pages a day and and just keep at it and keep, you know, while you're um, writing, you're still brainstorming and you're still troubleshooting. You can finish a novel very, very easily, so to speak, in four to five months. Sarah, I can't remember if I asked you about your process for your novel. Did you, Mm -hmm. were you a disciplined first draft writer? Yeah, I'm a pretty disciplined first draft writer. I I feel like I 
I spend a lot of time on the lead up. I spend a lot of time before I get into the first draft, making notes and brainstorming, researching if I have to do research. Um, I like to have a full outline before I start writing. But then once I get into the first draft, typically I can write a first draft of a novel in like two months or so. Um, so I can get it out pretty quickly. <laughs> but I've, I've done a lot before I get to that stage. Um, and then I also have a lot to do after that too. So it's definitely not a finished product at that point. Um, so yeah, but but I do, I love that first draft stage where you're just kind of, it feels the most to me like real writing where you're actually creating something yeah. and putting words down on the page. Um, and it's, you know, it's kind of satisfying to watch that word count go up and just feel like you're discovering something. Um, that's probably my favorite part of the writing process is the first draft. But yeah, for, for me, there's a lot of work that comes before and after that in order for me to be able to write the first draft quickly. So what kind of things, uh, Misha, do you put in this course that you've put together? Uh, I, now I'm like trying to remember. I should... <laughs> no, I think it was the kind of, I like the outline personally, and I know that's controversial, but <laughs> I don't ever know the ending. And I left the ending open for both of my books. And actually, when I just turned in this first draft, which is also started in 2019 at, at NC State, so it's not necessarily first draft, but I thought the ending would be different. So even with the outline, you leave some some space for, the, for it to breathe. But I think it's kind of like getting the outline, getting the characters down. I'll do everything from like their astrology chart to their like personality test, <laughs> you know, whatever. So I kind of, I try to use different ways to really make them concrete as much as the person or character can be. And then, um, so it's like getting that outline line and then starting writing three to five pages a day. And then one of the things is if you're able to take a walk, then the walking is important. I talk about the Stanford study that I'm obsessed with <laughs> that shows it's, it's proven that taking a walk improves your creativity. And there's, you know, uh, is it Joyce? And there's a bunch of other writers who wrote stories about walking or talked so much about how walking was where they got all their best ideas. And then, and then I can't, there's one other thing, but I'm like, what blanking on it. And so it's just kind of this process of daily, like writing, walking, um, brainstorming, just getting it done, not letting your inner demons shut you up. So one question is, cause I walk a lot too. Um, how do you remember all those things that come in your head? What do you do to, to uh, by the time you get back up from your three mile walk, uh, are you, are you talking into your phone? Are you making little notes or what are you doing? No, I don't bring my phone. That's the rule. Actually, <laughs> I can't have it. I can't feel it for the most part. I remember everything. And I feel like yeah. if it's important enough, I wouldn't forget. And it's not everything. It's just, it's just like the kind of it's flowing and, you know, and things are coming to you. It's usually one big problem or where how could I fix this or how could I make this better how could this pull the story together and often it will come to you also if you're seeking what you are seeking is seeking you in that sense you know the story wants to be told I think believing that's probably important it's mm, interesting uh well that kind of feeds into another topic we, we talked about discussing which was the spiritual emotional aspects of writing uh you know dealing with the inner critic the self-sabotage, internal doubt, the fears, because that can shut down a first draft or a fifth draft or a 10th draft. So uh, talk a little bit about why that's important to you, Misha. I think it's underestimated. I, I don't think it can only be me. I feel like it's got to be others out there. But I, I feel like there's been a huge shift since I got my first arc and held it in my hands, I was terrified. I, I, I really was. I thought this is garbage, <laughs> which is a horrible thing to say, but it's so hard to 
not compare yourself or not to worry what other people will think or, but it's, it's been useful to go through the process and, and realize that you'll survive for one thing, but also to build that self-confidence and the self-esteem. And even beyond that, to constantly remind yourself that your work is an, is just an offering. You, you can kind of place it on the altar of creativity or storytelling and back away and and there it is and it's it's a, you're offering it's good it's net good net positive and so you leave it there and whoever needs it will find it whoever picks it up if they, it's not for them or they don't like it for whatever reason that's not your problem and it doesn't matter because that's it's, then it's not for them and potentially at potent you know on what you're what you're writing a lot of um i haven't got a ton of feedback the industry reviews like two of them have been good <laughs> but you know some of the online reviews from from readers i definitely try not to look but there are people who do not respond well to the anti-capitalism or her kind of she's a little bit of a communist <laughs> people don't like that you know a lot of, there are people who don't like that which is fine it, it's totally fine and so i think that Either way, you just you're making the offering, you're backing away from the altar, and and you're just going to continue to tell stories. It's just also there's a little levity in the sense that we're just telling stories. Yeah. Well, one thing, and then Sarah, I want to get your thoughts on this too. But uh, one thing you just said sparked a memory. Uh, <laughs> my third book in my Christmas courtroom trilogy, this little thing where lawyers try to save Christmas. It has this uh, global warming element to it. You know, the North Pole's melting, and mm -hmm. somebody. Uh, they gave me a one and just ranted about how there's no such thing as global warming. I'm like, dude, it's like, a, it's a, it's a fun holiday. I didn't say anything, you know, but it's like, you know, but uh, anyway, Sarah, what are your thoughts? Um, well, I think that's funny, but I, I do love what Misha was saying about um, thinking of your work as an offering that you just, you're, you're offering something to the world that they can enjoy. If it's not for them, then it's not for them. And that's fine. Um, and you just, it's your job to create it and then put it out there and then back away. Like there's nothing else you can do with it once it's out there. Um, so I think that's a really good perspective. And I'm kind of curious too, how that ties into not just feedback you've gotten from, you know, reviewers and both professional and readers um, reviewing your work now that it's out there, but also since you have such a background in um, getting feedback from other writers, like with your MFA, um, and now also as a teacher, I'm sure you give a lot of feedback to students. Do you have any uh, tips for, for giving or receiving feedback on writing in good ways? Yes, that's so it just depends too, because when we're giving and receiving feedback, it's not finished. It, mm -hmm. When no work, you know, no work is ever finished, they say. I don't know if that's true because we got to let it go. But I do think when you find the right critiquers, you'll know that they're coming from a place that wants to make it the best work. And so when I create my workshops, I use um, formats of like Craft in the Real, Real World for Matthew Celeste is an anti racist writing workshop. So so it's a different form of workshop and a lot of it is idea generation, which we call what if and um, questions. So it's no critiques at all. I don't, I don't allow them, which might be ridiculous, but it's more like what questions did you have? And if you can't frame it as a question, keep it to yourself. Cause if you can't frame it as a question, how are they going to uh, like come at it? You know? And so if you can say like, what I, what I didn't understand is okay, but it's better if like, do you think, or, and so I feel like if, craft or something is directed at me in that way I absorb it much better but working with an editor for the first time was difficult right because you're a little more defensive and a little more vulnerable but it's so important to remember that in the end it's you trying to make the story as strong as it can be 
And so whatever, whatever kind of negative feedback you get after it's finished, it doesn't, you can be like, it doesn't matter. I don't even need to see that because there's nothing I can do unless it's some sort of pattern, writerly pattern, you know, but I, at that point, I also think you don't need to be getting, writers don't necessarily need to be getting critiques for their craft from Goodreads. You know, that's not where your best critiques are going to come from. It's the people that you trust who, who care about your, you and your story more than anything. I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah. And I, I, I would <laughs> just add to that, that, uh, you know, there's enough people that are, are fully willing on the internet to, to criticize everything. So why <laughs> criticize yourself, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, improve and get better, but, uh, you know, you have, you have the right to, uh, to do it and to put it out there, which kind of leads to another, our third, before we get to your novel, setting, setting boundaries and believing in your right to write. And I wonder if that has to do with the fact that you have how many children? Three. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. How do you set how do you set boundaries so you can find your time to write? <laughs> wow. That's another thing that I think ties into the self-esteem. As a mother, um, going into grad school is the only one my first year, the only mother, you know, the maybe the only one married. And so it's you feel a little well, I felt old, I guess, you know, and I was older than everyone. And so I think I've had to really you just it's all in you you know it's like no one is judging me they were all really wonderful so I think it's kind of overcoming whatever these you call limitations or whatever you call um problems even with the with the children it's it's hard that's a real that's not a problem of course but it's a real time crunch it can be and so I have friends uh Sarah Grunder Ruiz who writes romance, wonderful romance novels and teaches at NC State wakes up at like five or six I can't do that personally because I physically cannot do that so it's a matter of when is my time to write and then you know using that time not only using the time wisely but protecting it um as much as I can and uh, you know this isn't even coming from me Ursula Le Guin had the same same schedule she her kids went to school when they were finally of school age she would write while they were at school and then they all came home and then she was mom and before her kids went to school her husband would come home and she, they would all have dinner together and then at like 10 to 1 or 2 she would write while the kids were asleep and so women through time have mothers have been um figuring out how and where they're going to fit it in and protect their time but it's she Ursula Le Guin's quote was so great she's like you have to believe that the stories you tell matter and that you have the right to tell them it's it's not it's in so many words but that quote uh, has stuck with me we should, I could I could have written down the the full thing yeah. but it's well and you add to that the fact that you are a what do you call it a band wife and you've got a <laughs> uh, podcast with called band wives just, just tell before you go to your book tell us about band wives <laughs> Well, that kind of adds to the neurosis of my situation because my husband's gone about six months of the year. And so that is, it was especially important to me to make time to do this. It's something I, you know, I intended and always wanted to do. I knew when I realized I needed further education, it wasn't a conflict, but it was maybe surprising to my husband when, you know, I said at 28, 29 years old with three kids that I was going to go to grad school and we had you know we were going to figure it out and so it happened but, but so yeah I run the I'm with the podcast with my friend and we it's really fun you know actually it's helped me so much I don't know how you all feel about being a part of a literary podcast but the solidarity and kind of like seeing how um, there's so much in common and so many of the shared struggles but also the perks and the joys and the the wins 
Well, I just got Sarah to join me along with Hannah and Jen. Mm -hmm. I've been doing it by myself forever. Okay. So what do you think, Sarah? Is it, is it, you enjoyed it? Yeah. 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 And, you know, working with you and Hannah, but also like we have so many great guests on the show and I feel like I learn so much every time. Um, and just talking with writers, I feel like writers need a lot of emotional support from each other. <laughs> We're like each other's emotional support animals because it's, there are certain things about writing that are difficult sort of in practice and psychologically that I think if you don't write, at least on a you know semi-serious basis, it's hard to understand. Um, and so you need your community of other writers who you can talk about those things with and trade ideas and trade advice and sometimes just commiserate. Um, and it's it's been really you know instructive and inspiring, I think, to talk with our co-hosts here and the other guests. And yeah, I think it's, it's a great way to be a part of a writing community. Yeah, it's it's been really good for me too because I was doing individual interviews and I was still picking the brains of these authors but it's nice to have the perspective of Sarah and Hannah and then the other guests that we come on we've we've really as the, as the listeners know we've kind of expanded the show we're still trying to figure out how to keep it within an hour we're not successful yet because we're just having too much fun talking and, and if you want to drop out just drop out or come back and listen <laughs> and you have time to listen or you know to hit the pause button whatever but uh yeah so it's it's been great and I think uh but any good band wife stories you can tell us? I mean, I can't. The <laughs> best one was from my co-host, so Chandra Sanchez, and everyone should listen. But yeah, her story I will briefly tell because it's probably one of the craziest I heard. But she was at a huge festival in the UK, Reading and Leeds, and there's just mud. It's like fields. Everyone's wearing their, you know, their wellies and everything. And her, uh, she had like an her appendix burst out there, oh. like out at a festival on the field. But so that was crazy. And then they had to get to the hospital and then she couldn't get her flight home, you know, and all this crazy stuff. But then you're in the UK. So it was free <laughs> it was free to go stay at the hospital, you know, which I've had a lot of band stories about uh, European hospital stays, which is because it blows everyone's mind. But that's probably the craziest thing. Mine is all. But I actually just flew home Sunday night, a red eye from Las Vegas uh, at a music festival. And I went to teach at 10 in the morning. All right. Well, uh, what kind of music does your husband play? Uh, it's rock and roll. They're called Taking okay. Back Sunday. They're from Long Island, but he's from High Point, North Carolina. All right. Rock and roll. Good stuff. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's jump into the novel, uh, Man-Made Constellations. Uh, both Sarah and I have read it, uh, as I described it earlier, modern-day love story kind of wrapped up in these road trips from small town in the Midwest. Uh, you've received uh, a lot of praise for the book. Uh, and I, I kind of want to start... Uh, and we'll just kind of, you know, kind of go back and forth here, Sarah and me with questions, but I kind of want to start in a little small town life in Minnesota, um, because, um, maybe people don't know as much about it. You grew up in Minnesota, as I understand. And, uh, so you've got a perspective on that and I'm sure it inspired this novel. Uh, give our listeners a sense of this place where your characters, uh, live. Yeah. The town is real the name and the place in between three lakes, but obviously it's fictionalized for the book. Um, it was one of my favorite places to stop on when we would drive. My dad is a teacher. And so he is from Southern Minnesota, but we would drive to this town called Mankato, which is kind of in the book where he got his master's in teaching. And so when I was uh, like an elementary, early elementary school, so it was on the way this town. And so sometimes we would stop and you could, um, he would bring his boat and we could get get on the water and stop at a dock and have like a little lunch at a, at a place so there were really good memories and and the town is adorable but mostly the name was what I loved because it's pretty symbolic of Elysian and so 
yeah, it was kind of an homage to that. And the fact that even if a place is beautiful and, and charming, when you spent your whole town, your whole life in a town of 800 people, um, it can feel a little, you can feel a little um, self-contained. Yeah, I mean, like it could be any small town anywhere where everybody knows your mm-hmm. name, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, tell us about the characters, uh, Jason and, and Lo. Um, uh, you got two, div- two different storylines going here, two different characters on the journey. Uh, I have to be honest, uh, you know, I'm not, I wasn't a big fan of Jason to begin with. You oh. know? Yeah. And, I, and, and Lo, I mean, just because of, I'll just have to tell the listeners because I'm not giving anything away, but early on he finds out that his girlfriend is pregnant and he does the wrong thing. You know, he leaves and uh, it's like, dude, you know, come on. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you're not really, I'm, I'm sort of hating on Jason early on, but he has an arc. So, right. But, and then there's Lo and she's got her own obsessions. You mentioned earlier in the podcast about uh, with the environment and it's great to be supportive of the environment, but she goes way, 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 over the top and she can't seem to have a boyfriend because if her boyfriend doesn't fully share her values, um, then she's going to have a problem with that. So, uh, which kind of fits into what's going on in society today with people not really get, being able to get along with folks if they are in another political party or something. So talk about how these two characters came to your mind. Yeah. I think that Lowe uses her values as a weapon, which is, you know, kind of the, the aggressive end as opposed to maybe the loving end of, of what values stand for. So I think that she had a lot to learn because she wasn't really helping herself or anyone or the world necessarily if she's shutting people out or turning them off to her beliefs. But I think that um, the story started differently. The first draft, um, Lowe's love interest and her were a couple. And so uh, the original, this is funny because it's not relevant to the book now, but the original draft was a love triangle. Uh-huh. Which, yeah. Um, and, but immediately the second draft, it that fizzled out because of Jason's situation. And it's funny because I hear people are frustrated with him. Um, and I hope by the end, you know, you're not because by the end I was not. Yeah. And by the end, I'm, I feel a lot of sympathy for Lo, maybe not empathy because she's young and, and frustrating, but sympathy (laughs) at least. And so, um, so that was how they came together initially in a, in a different universe of a different world, but Blanche, you know, um, Jason's mother was how they, that, how they connected. She needed Lo's help. Yeah. And before I pitch it to Sarah here, I just want to say, I, I really did like the storyline and I liked how you set it up with this sort of uh road trip. Uh, and just so the listeners know, I mean, Lowe is because she's environmentally friendly to everything. She doesn't think you should hardly pay for anything either. So, you know, she sees an ad to, to, for a car that's free and she goes to get the car that's free. And there's only one catch, you know, and that is that she has to go across country in this car to get this woman's son to bring him Jason to bring him home because they're alienated. And in the course of doing that, she's got to take a mechanic that she's met that she's not really too friendly with at first. And he has a backstory. So it's, it, I, I really enjoyed the road trip part of it. And I'm just wondering, you know, you said love triangle originally, but now we got the mechanic coming in. Uh, uh, tell us his name for the listeners. And, and cause he's kind of a good old, I mean, I never disliked him. I like, you know, he, he was, he was always trying to do the right thing for love. He's yeah. always trying to do the right thing for people. Um, so tell us about him. 
Yeah, um, he ties into the um, my North Carolina background, which is where he's from, the the Asheville area. I yeah, I, I think that he's intrigued by Lowe partially because of their where they're situated, you know, and there's not a lot going on, but it, it's he was raised in a way that was. Um, fundamental and so I think potentially he's attracted to that and low in some you know psychological ways that we do these do these pairings with our with our significant others and or he can manage it at least he doesn't he doesn't see only that he's able to see past that mm-hmm. um that fundamentalism in her and her beliefs and so yeah when I, that, and that's all to say like your drafts can change dramatically because in my first draft, they were already together and Jason was maybe going to kind of sneak in there because he's more Mm like-minded to low. They're more similar. Um, But it just, when the second draft, well, it was more than second draft, but when the final drafts came along, that's the, all of that had fizzled out and created what, you know, what really, I guess needed, I think needed to happen. So. Sarah, what are your questions? Yeah, well, it's interesting talking about your characters. They're they're so complex and layered, and I really enjoyed that. Um, and we were talking a little bit about Lo and her sort of environmental beliefs, and she's a freegan, meaning she uh, she's someone who kind of tries to exist outside of the capitalist system and get things for free, even if it means dumpster diving for food. Um, and that's you know one of the big defining characteristics of her character. And it was interesting to me because she is, um, we're, we're pretty close to her point of view. We're very much like in her head throughout the story, at least in the chapters where she's in. Um, but we also get a real sense of the fact that she does have some growing to do. And she has sometimes some inconsistencies in her thinking or a little bit of maybe hypocrisy. Um, and so I was curious how you approach that as a writer. Like, how do you put us in the point of view of a, of a character and give us access to her thoughts and feelings and try to give a sympathy for her, but also show that she has these flaws and that she has things that she needs to learn or work on as a person. Yeah, at deep, deep third person limited is the point of view for for both Lowe and, and Jason, but we're closer to Lowe um, because of Jason's nature. He's, he's not, he's much more distant, especially at this point in his life, but Lowe, um, I like starting out with a flawed character because it gives them a lot of space, <laughs> a lot of space to go forward. But I do think when you're trapped, anyone is trapped in those beliefs, using them both as a weapon and a shield, then when you're so far removed from other people's reality or or kind of entrenched in your own beliefs, it's so easy to rationalize and justify whatever, you know, her her selfishness or you know is she and she is she selfish or is she uh traumatized from her past or her own experiences i uh, i can't really say but i think she needs to so- lower defenses and soften and that's probably her biggest lesson in the book yeah and she is um she's the kind of character who is sort of fighting her own belief system because of the fact that she is finding herself attracted to this man from north carolina she can't figure out why and I'm just a little curious. You said you'd been writing like historical novel before, but this is a, a full-blown sort of trying to come to terms with uh, young love in the face of, you know, one's beliefs that might be, you know, mm-hmm. hard to reconcile if you put yourself with that particular person. What was it that wanted you to kind of take on that story? Uh, I'm sure it has nothing to do with being a band one. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, actually, I grew up in Minnesota, and then I went to college in East Texas, so the yeah. Baptist Bible Belt. And so it was quite a reckoning, maybe opposite of this book's re- reckoning, but, or, uh, you know, it was... Um, you realize you can see how different your views are and how entrenched you might be and how entrenched someone else might be in their views. And that was the first time I had experienced that. And it really was fascinating to me. And and I don't think it would, I don't think it would change now, except for we're more aware because the internet, but if someone from my hometown went there, it'd still probably be the same, if not more um, divided. But so I think that was part of it, but more of it, uh, for example, I was a vegan <laughs> for a long time and I love vegans and I love um, any anyone's beliefs, I think are, you know, are really interesting and valid and they shape them. But when you are so zealous about things that you can use them as a, as a pedestal of self-righteousness, I guess. And so that was kind of what I was thinking about low and, and John being such a nice, handsome, you know, nice wonderful guy even then finding fault with the fact that he isn't exactly who you want him to be and I think I've been married for 15 years and so I think just realizing that you do not get to mold the person who you know and or like find that exact person and you don't need to either and I know Sarah I'm gonna let you jump back in here too but I think we need to get to the fireflies um, because uh, you you drop these little one page chapters in throughout the book uh, that sort of ties into the cover, you know, these little blinking flies. I thought it was interesting. I mean, I remember this one, I'm trying to follow along. I'm reading about, I'm learning about fireflies. And there's this one time when we're not sure if uh, Lowe and, and and the boy from North Carolina are going to sleep together or not, but there's this chapter where the firefly dance takes place and where the females are seeing if the males fireflies can stand up to, uh, what do you let's talk about that talk about fireflies in general from that <laughs> it was so fun i i loved i read this it's called when death takes something from you give it back carl's book that's the subtitle and it's by a dutch um poet but it's it's a prose story about the death of her son and it was very touching and it made me cry many times but she uses so much input from the world around her it's nature and and tree lore and um, poetry and ancient mythology and and that book along with a few others using found documents and those really inspired me and I actually just during the pandemic I, I knew the book had the captive fireflies and the mammoth constellations but during the pandemic I picked up this uh, glowworms you know fireflies and glowworms book and the stuff that I learned is so applicable <laughs> you know the the um symbolism and I really just like the idea of mosaic novels or, or like questioning narr- narrators and um, inserting um, you know multiple point of views and so I just felt like it fit and it it fits so well this the firefly I guess trajectory so, I thought. yeah well I think that it was interesting structurally how you use that too because you have you know the kind of more straightforward narrative chapters but then you also have um, they're split up with these little sections where we get kind of 
scientific descriptions about fireflies and different characteristics that they have. And then you also have some chapters where you'll end a chapter or a section and the character is about to tell a story. And then you just go into that character's first person point of view and let them tell the story in their words that way, as opposed to having it come out in the scene. Um, so it's interesting to me how, how you like broke up the structure in that way. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, was that something that you had in the first draft or how did you decide on how to structure that? No, I think it's one of those things where I had to know the rules before I could break them. And so I don't know if I ever would have done that without going to school and, and kind of seeing and learning all these contemporary 21st century structures, because I, in, in traditional literature undergrad, definitely did not pick up anything like that. And so I read so many, I mean, so many books I could mention that inspired me. Erasure is one um, that has a novella in the, written by the character in the middle of the book by Percival Everett. And there's and there were many others, but at, at NC State with Cadwell Turnbull, we co-wrote co like a 12 piece novella that is all found material, different point of views, different characters. And, and Cadwell's book is similar. And it's this, and I think it's an emerging trend and it seems to be becoming more, oh, like Lincoln at the Bardo, I guess, obviously, um, but uh, by George Saunders. So I think it's more about like giving everyone their space, letting the story become fuller, um, kind of ex expanding the sphere of the story. Um, but it, but it is funny because after writing this, I'm like, will I ever be able to write a first person, one person narrative book <laughs> all the way through? Cause it's really fun. It's, it's truly just fun to kind of play around and break the rules. And there's like a dream chapter in this book, which I know is like the biggest rule breaker, but I just, just decided it would be fun. Well, I noticed that too. And I'm glad Sarah mentioned it. Um, I noticed it as a, as a nice technique to be able to share backstory in an interesting way without it becoming uh, a long back and forth dialogue and having to drop in tags and have a reaction to something. It was a way to, to get the stuff because we got up to a point and we didn't know this character's backstory. And really you ended a chapter with that character about to tell it. And then when you start the next chapter, you're in their head and they're telling the story and you don't, they don't have to, I was reading it and I thought, wait a minute, what's happening here? You know, and then I thought, well, this is good because, you know, if you otherwise, it's almost like if you're in dialogue with somebody, it becomes like speeches, right? And it's, mm -hmm. it's too, too much encyclopedic stuff. You know, but this way, it was kind of a clever, sneaky way to get all that backstory in in, a, in an entertaining way. Yeah. So it was good. Thanks. I knew I had to do it again. So I did it with Jerry. I felt like yeah. just one would have been, you know, maybe not like the pillars wouldn't be there. So I, I thought I would have to do it twice, maybe to create some symmetry. But I also realized I was breaking the rules. But I, I think it's really fun to do. To, I'm a rule breaker yeah. in general. Well, so. <laughs> you got to know the rules before you can break them, right? Yeah. Uh, Sarah, anything else before we uh, wrap this part up? Um, well, I would love to hear you read a little yeah, bit from absolutely. the book, but I just one little quick point on, on what we're talking about with breaking the rules. I think one thing that helped make it so successful here was the fact that you did it in a way that was very clear. Like we could always tell whose head we were in. Um, you do a lot of geographical hopping because the court, the story covers such a wide, wide range of locations. And I think you had like a heading telling us where we were in space, like where in the country at the beginning of every chapter. Um, even the dreams, I think you might've said something like a dream or a nightmare at the top <laughs> of the dream section. So you you broke it up and you played with the rules and that kind of thing, but you did it in a way where we could 
follow along clearly. And I was never like, oh, wait, what's going on here? You know, I was never confused in a bad way. So I think it was a good kind of object lesson in how you do that and how you can have fun with the rules and play with structure and do something that's non-traditional, but still make it flow for the reader and, and keep them kind of along for the ride with you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so do you have a section you can read for us? Yeah, I'll just read from the beginning because then hopefully everyone listening will say, oh, I need to find out. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> okay, this is the, the very opening chapter. Elysian, Minnesota. Lowe pulled out the ad she had cut out of the newspaper, checking the address again. She fingered the paper's soft, jagged edges, the simple serif font, a small black box encasing the words, free car, 1333 Forest Street, pick it up. She breathed through her scarf, the inside wet with perspiration. The only sound, except her breathing, was ice crunching under her feet. All her attention was on the sidewalk, frozen and slick. One of the seams of her old boots had become unglued, her toes exposed to the frigid wind. Low flexed her fingers in dirty white mittens and realized she could barely feel them at all. As each year of her twenties passed, the cold permeated deeper and more permanently into her bones. She imagined herself freezing solid, enshrined forever on a barren sidewalk, never having left this town of 800 people situated squarely in the middle of nowhere. So when Lowe saw the ad in the paper, she decided that if she was going to survive another winter in Minnesota, she needed this car. She had walked 10 blocks from her duplex, one end of town to the other, and found herself on Forest Street with rows of factory houses long outlasting the factory itself. She was familiar with the street because it was impossible not to be familiar with every street in town, but she didn't know anyone who lived on it. She stood under an unlit streetlight in the in the growing dark, staring at the house, 1333 Forest Street. She wondered vaguely if she should be afraid. Is this what she had been warned about in elementary school, the free candy from a stranger scenario that mothers who bothered to stick around warn their daughters about? Single women on the street had been murdered in less suspicious circumstances than this, but nothing that exciting ever happened in Elysian. Right. Uh, all right, well, listeners, uh, we're going to come back with our takeaways uh, and what's coming next uh, right after this. Charlotte Readers Podcast is on social media, and we'd love to have you follow and engage with us. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Charlotte Readers Podcast. Check us out. All right, uh, this section show, we uh, do a few takeaways, just some impressions. Uh, Sarah, you get to go first. Yeah, sure. Well, um, I really enjoy having Misha here. I mean, we miss Hannah, but it's been great to have some guest co-hosts on the last few episodes and just not not just to hear about your books, but also to be able to get other people's perspectives on things like the two minute tips and the, the community blog posts and have those sorts of craft discussions. So that's been a lot of fun. Um, and I think we've talked a lot today about things that that make me think about kind of breaking the rules of writing, whether it's, you know, like Misha did with her structure in her book, kind of from a craft perspective, or also um, in terms of how you structure your life as a writer and, and how you structure your time as a writer, uh, making that time for yourself and whether it's you write a consistent amount every day or you take your time in between and go on the walks and procrastinate and let those thoughts build up and then you have your blitz day. Um, you have to kind of make your own rules. And so I think that's a really great takeaway for me from this. Um, and I hope that everyone who's doing NaNoWriMo this month is off to the races and enjoying it. <laughs> Yeah. So Misha, what about you? How about you you're going from bandwidth podcasting to literary podcasting? Uh, what do you think? Um, I love it. 
I will come back and hang out with y'all anytime. I've <laughs> made notes for the uh, Charlotte Writers Club and the um, the that's novel. So I'm excited to hopefully make it to some of those. But I'm most excited about going down a rabbit hole of the Mariba storks. <laughs> <This> giant <laughs> cre- I love birds. I really, really do. And especially like prehistoric looking ones. And I'm going to get Truth is a Flightless Bird too. Maybe I'm going to order that for Park Road. Yeah, that's great. And and I've enjoyed having you on as well uh, as a co-host uh, today. It's it's nice to get different perspectives. And uh, it's interesting too, because, you know, when you do this, as I've done it for so long, I mean, I was always just sort of, a, I read Westerns, I read John Grisham, I read, you know, thrillers and stuff, but I read so much more now. And, and so it's nice to read uh, books like yours and, uh, you know, be challenged, right? You know, to be have your thinking challenged about some of these different things uh, that these characters are going through, but they also too, I think you have good pace in the book. So that was good. I mean, it kept me, kept me interested. It didn't, it didn't, uh, your book did not begin on page 50. It began, <laughs> it began in the beginning as you, as you just read. And the other comment, I guess the takeaway would be, I, I think experimentation. Uh, we heard from Charlotte Litt a tip, you know, to try. Um, we've heard about blitz writing, something to try. These are all things. Um, trying new things is a good way to learn you know what works for you so it's kind of kind of away from me so um so sarah what's coming next uh yeah so our next episode is gonna be a fun one and very uh romantic one <laughs> we've got new york times best-selling author sophie cousins with her new book before i do which is a romantic comedy about a woman who's one who got away shows up the day before her wedding um had a really fun discussion with her and we'll also discuss jill brashear's take on how writing serial fiction reignited her spark um, she's a romance writer and she had some great uh, takeaways from there about how she kind of rejiggered her writing career and got her energy back as a writer. And of course, we'll have some writing tips and book recommendations and community updates and all that fun stuff. All right, listeners, well, thank you for joining us and uh, thank you, Misha, for being a part of this. Thank you for having me.